Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. Good morning to our viewers online as well. It is hard to believe that tomorrow is the first day of spring. Or it doesn't feel like spring yet. Uh, Easter is actually three weeks away on April 9th. And I want to encourage you to think and pray about who you can invite that weekend. Uh, it seems to be our largest weekend of the year. And I, when you're thinking and praying about who to invite, um, not people who go to other churches, right, but unchurched people, people who need Jesus, people who need the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? So um, let the Holy Spirit show you who you can invite, who needs Jesus. Uh, and also, I encourage you to invite them to the uh, free Easter breakfast that morning. Um, that's going to be from uh, out in the gathering space from 8 to 9, um, so that we'll have time to clean up and be ready to greet those who, who, who don't come to the breakfast and they just come to the service. So, And children's ministry will open a little bit early that weekend at 9.30. So after Easter, the weekend after Easter, we're going to launch a new seven-week sermon series uh, on the book of Nehemiah. Uh, that'll take us through the end of May. Nehemiah um, is all about restoring. It's all about rebuilding. Uh, it's about dealing with setbacks and failures and adversity. And it is about spiritual renewal. Um, today, we are continuing our series in Colossians with the second half of chapter 3, where Paul has been teaching about the supremacy of Christ, uh, he's been teaching about how important it is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And he shows us in today's scripture how that is applied within the context of the Christian household. Specifically, husbands and wives, parents and children, and slaves and masters, which were common in the first century uh, Greco-Roman world that they were living in. So right at the get-go, it's interesting that within each of these relationships that Paul is addressing, Paul doesn't first address the one with authority, but he addresses the one without authority. So he addresses wives before husbands, children before parents, slaves before masters. So right at the beginning, uh, Paul is being countercultural. Right, this, is the, this is the opposite of how the ancient world worked at the time. In that culture, the husband was over the wife, right? the parent was over the children, the master was over the slave. That's just how it was. Uh, they, these were the hierarchies right? that clearly indicated who, who is to rule and who is to submit. Uh, the husband's will rules. The master's will prevails. And the parents are always to be obeyed, right? This is how the world worked back then. You didn't ask questions. Uh, you kept quiet. And you essentially let the men do the talking. That would have been the prevailing attitude of the culture in which Paul was writing this. But as Paul's been saying all along in Colossians, the church... Uh, this new community of believers is to be a demonstration of the future reality of the kingdom of God. The church was and is to live a radically different lifestyle 
than the surrounding culture in which it lives. The church is to model a new creation, a new creation where Christ is supreme, right, where Christ is central, and that new creation is to be completely different from the kingdom of this world. Actually, it is to be inverted, upside down. We see this in the Sermon on the Mount. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. He blesses the humble. He blesses the merciful, the poor, right? He blesses those who are persecuted for doing right. And it's not just in the Sermon on the Mount. We see this all throughout the Bible. God blesses and uses the humble and the poor. He uses those who've been rejected, rejected by society, rejected by culture, those who've been overlooked, those who've been looked down upon. They're all through the scriptures. People like Moses, David, Ruth, Esther, Rahab, Mary Magdalene, and so on. We see an upside-down kingdom where humility and submission are the prevailing values rather than power and dominance. If we go back a few verses, we see that Paul says the following. He says this. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. In his letter to the Galatians, he takes this even further. He says this in Galatians 3.28. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. So Paul's unapologetic. Um, He says over and over again how the kingdom of God is different. Right? He, He wreaks havoc on our way of doing relationships, which, which have always been based on hierarchy and power and authority and dominance and control and submission. Like that is the way of this world, but it is not the way of Jesus. It's not the way of his kingdom. Kingdom relationships are based on humility. Humility. I'm going to come back to this in a minute, but I want to say this. So there's probably enough material in our scripture this morning uh, for a half dozen sermons. Um, Raising kids, fathers not aggravating their children, um, or the whole slaves and masters thing, right? Like, how the church used this for centuries to endorse and support slavery. How Paul, he may have seen the evilness of the institution of slavery, but he wasn't going to single-handedly like dismantle it, right? That wasn't his calling. So instead, he addresses how a Christ follower is to act within such a God, ungodly institution, right? And then, how does that translate today, right? Instructions for slaves and masters, right? Usually it's contextualized 
to the employer-employee uh, employer relationship, right? Like, as a boss, how are you supposed to treat your employees, right? As an employee, do you work for your boss as if you were working unto the Lord, right? So I'm going to spend the rest of our time, though, um, talking about men and women and how they function together in the home, and in the church, because those two things are connected. So among evangelical, Bible-believing Christians, uh, like ourselves, positions on this issue have polarized into two different camps. And those camps are typically labeled complementarian and egalitarian. Now both camps use scripture to justify their position, both are very serious about respecting the authority of Scripture. Both camps can be not so nice towards the other. First, the complementarian position. Okay, in short, complementarians believe that certain roles should be filled by men. Uh, the complementarian view is that women and men have equal value and worth and personhood before God, but they have different roles to fill, right? Both in the family and in the church. A one-point complementarian would believe that men and women have different roles in the marriage and in the family. A two-point complementarian would believe that men and women have different roles in both the family and in the church. And there's a spectrum here. Some would say that only men can fill the, past, fill the role of pastor, elder, ministry leader, teacher. Some wouldn't allow a woman to preach or teach uh, in a public setting if the, in, uh, if the meeting included men. Others would be fine with women preaching teaching, leading things, even pastoring, so long as the ultimate authority in the church or the headship uh, is a male or a group of males. Now the other position, the egalitarian position. Egalitarians believe that roles, both in the home and in the church, are interchangeable between men and women. They would say that men and women can be equally gifted in roles that historically might have been deemed more masculine or more feminine. And they feel like, regardless of gender, um, they have the responsibility to use their spiritual gifts and to follow God's calling on their lives. They would say that gender alone doesn't give anyone particular privileges and no position within the church leadership is reserved for one gender only. Now, both of these groups would be considered theologically conservative and Protestant. Um, both believe in the authority of Scripture. Both groups have a desire to be faithful to God and faithful to God's Word. Now, there are two other views along these lines, kind of extremes of each position. The extreme of the complementarian view 
uh, would be biblical patriarchy or a three-point complementarianism. I'm getting a little like technical today, but we'll get to the point here. They would say, this, this, a person who falls in this camp would say that men should be in leadership in home, in church, and in society. Um, that is, women should have no leadership in society and they shouldn't work outside the home. This position, again, is called biblical patriarchy. The extreme of the egalitarian view would be Christian feminism. Christian feminism. So this view uh, really comes from reading feminist ideals and values into scripture, right? And these ideals start to take precedence over scripture, which then really leads to a redefining of who God is, right? And now we have left our theologically conservative moorings, right? We, in my opinion, are no longer in a biblical position. So what about life church? Life church. Well, I don't know anyone at life church who would land in either of those extreme camps that I just described, biblical patriarchy or Christian feminism. But definitely most of us would identify as either complementarian or egalitarian. But even within those two groups, like not everybody lands in the same place, right? There's a spectrum. Officially here at Life Church, uh, there are currently no limitations on women leading ministries, teaching, preaching, or even being a pastor. We don't have a female pastor right now, but we have in the past, and we may again in the future. Our church bylaws do currently state that only men can serve as an elder at Life Church, and only a man can serve in the role as a senior pastor. That is currently what the Life Church bylaws state, and that is because of the headship issue that I mentioned. I would say most of the complementarians I've talked to at Life Church would say that they don't have a problem with women leading, women teaching, women preaching and pastoring, but for them it is this issue of male headship, authority. Last year, uh, us elders spent about six months studying and discussing this issue uh, to see if we should change the bylaws to allow for women elders. In the end, when we voted, uh, five were in favor of changing the bylaws to allow women to be elders, and four were not. The bylaws state that we need a two-thirds majority with the elders in order to make a decision. And so, um, it would have, if that had happened, it would have then gone to the members, you guys, uh, for a majority vote. So that's, that's where we're at at Life Church, in case you were wondering on this particular issue. Um, so, but I want to say this. Wherever we land on this issue, it's important to approach it with humility. Here's a quote uh, from Dr. Sarah Sumner from her book, Men and Women in the Church. 
God has not called me to enter the debate and settle the matter conclusively. He has called me to something higher and more painful. He has called me to repent from my sins, speak the truth, suffer for his sake, love other people, and entrust myself to him who judges righteously. This is his call to all believers. In the past, we have failed to follow in his steps, but that's no excuse. It's not too late now to make a better decision. I think this is how we should all approach this. Um, here's, here's an interesting observation. Today's complementarians and egalitarians have more in common than we realize. Both groups today are radically different from most of the churches throughout history. Like, there is a long history of the church affirming a frankly condescending, unhealthy, patriarchal view of women where, where they were viewed as having little or no worth at all. Complementarians today would argue that even though men and women have different roles, right, women are of equal value before God. I've not met a complementarian at Life Church who wouldn't agree that men and women are of equal value before God. But that idea that I just said goes against hundreds of years of church history. Right? Same with egalitarians. They'd say that women should be able to serve and lead the same as a man can because they have equal value before God. Right? Again, that idea goes against hundreds of years of church history. Right? So no matter what position you hold, your view of men and women having equal value and equal worth before God is a revolutionary idea like compared to the unhealthy patriarchal practices of the church throughout history. Right? The writings, if you go back and read the writings of the early church fathers, the early church leaders, um, they were so biased and in favor of men and against women that it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing when you go back and read these things. Okay? I want to give you a couple examples. All right? Thomas Aquinas, in the 13th century, he wrote Summa Theologica. Right? It's a summary of the theological teachings of the Catholic Church. It's considered one of the foundational Christian texts, one of the most influential works in the history of uh, Western civilization. Here's a quote from that. As regards the individual nature, woman is defective and misbegotten, for the active force in the male seed tends to the production of a perfect likeness in the masculine sex, while the production of woman comes from defect in the active force or from some uh, material indisposition or even from some external influence, such as that of a south wind, which is moist, as the philosopher observes. It's embarrassing. Here's a second example. So one of the early church fathers, Tertullian, 
He lived in the late second, early third centuries, considered a great theologian, right? He's credited for the, being the first person to use the word Trinity um, to describe the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? Here's, here's what Tertullian wrote about women. He said, you, you are the devil's gateway. You are the unsealer of that forbidden tree. You are the first deserter of the divine law. You are she who persuaded him whom the devil was not valiant enough to attack. You destroyed so easily God's image, man. So it's important to see that both complementarians and egalitarians uh, have a redemptive view of women. That is a stark contrast, again, to this condescending, unhealthy, patriarchal view of women that's been all throughout church history. Historically, within the family, in society, and in the church, um, women have been considered inferior to men. Which, of course, we know today is not biblical. It is not biblical. Right? Today, neither complementarians nor egalitarians would argue that women are inherently inferior to men. They would argue that men and women have equal value and worth before God. We don't see women as being sinfully seductive and a distraction to men. Like that's all throughout the writings of church history. Right? We don't see women as being inferior or incapable. But this condescending, unhealthy, patriarchal view of women came from the time in which they lived. It came from the time in which they lived. It came from culture. It did not come from God's word. Here's my point. We all, to some degree, are bound as prisoners to our culture and to our society, right? We're like fish, and we don't see the water in which we live. Ask a fish about his water, and he says, what water, right? God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, right? Oftentimes, we think we have pure doctrine. We're so confident that everything that we believe is true. But we should be thankful that by God's grace, he doesn't reveal to us all at once like how entangled and how enmeshed our thoughts and our habits and our attitudes are with the sin and the ignorance of the world in which we live, right? It is only by his grace and his love and his mercy that God is as patient with us as he is. How many things today do we firmly believe that future generations will look back on with embarrassment? Never even considered that, right? Which leads me to this. I want us to consider a third path, a new path, 
regarding our view of genders and equality, who gets to make the decisions, um, who gets to submit to those decisions, and so on. This new path, based on the supremacy of Christ, based on the character of Christ, based on the ministry of Christ, based on the cross of Christ. It's not complementarianism. It's not egalitarianism. It is the path of humility. It is a path born out of the humility of Christ. Jesus Christ, above all else, modeled humility. He humbled himself out of his godhood and all the power that came with that into a singular human life. He served, he loved, he ministered, and he died out of humility. Everything he did was in obedience to his Father in heaven and for our benefit. Jesus reversed himself from rabbi and Lord, right, to be a servant and suffer so that we might be saved. He taught, he modeled, he lived a life of humility. And he encouraged this very same humility in the life of his followers. He warned them against taking a position above others, right? That's what people normally do in leadership, right? He instructed them instead to serve one another, right, as he served them. The humility of Jesus... The humility of Jesus is God's goal for every one of us, right? Above authority, above rights, above equality, above power should be humility. Christians are called by God not to the top, but to the bottom for humble service, right? Humble service doesn't keep track, right? It Love keeps no record of wrongs. Humility uh, keeps no record of rights. Our culture talks about leadership in terms of authority and power. But Jesus in his ministry and his life, right, reversed that. And he demonstrated humble service. Right? Instead of seeing everything through the lens of authority, and control and power and dominance, our lens should be through the humility of Jesus toward one another. Jesus possesses all the authority of the Lord of creation. He is the Lord of creation. He is the sole head of the church, right? And yet his go-to was to constantly serve those around him, right? Jesus' humility is the correct path. It is, um, his humility should be our primary role model. Even when it comes to looking at what biblical manhood and womanhood looks like. 
There is no better, more godly role model for either gender than Jesus. Think about it. Ruth or Sarah or Mary, the mother of Jesus. Might sound weird to you to hear this. None of them is a better model for a woman than Jesus is. Abraham, Moses, David, Paul, right? None of them is a better model for a man than Jesus is. Right? I'm not suggesting that Jesus wasn't a man, right? He was and he still is. But it is in looking at Jesus that we learn how to be a child of God, man or woman. Right? Our identities as men and women are important, but not as much as our identity in Christ. That supersedes all of that, right? Sometimes we use the Bible to reinforce gender stereotypes, right, for roles for men and women, right? Rather than focusing on the personhood, the identity of Jesus Christ and what he has to teach us about humility. And that can have really bad results. You're like, what kind of bad results are you talking about? Well, do we ever praise people for getting married and having lots of children? Great for those folks. What about those who don't get married? Or those who don't have children? Or who feel called to a career instead of raising a family. In Jesus, we see that God values our uniqueness and our distinctive gifts as men and women. Right? In Jesus, as the model for all human lives, there is a freedom to discover and develop all of our gifts, right? In Jesus, there is a freedom to be the unique man or the unique woman that God has called you to be. And we don't need to be bound to any cultural distortions, right, about our gender. I like to cook. My wife likes to fix things around the house. You gonna judge me? Uh, she actually has more education than I do. She's a paper away from getting her doctorate. I may know more theology than she does, but early on she was the one who said we needed to start going to church. Back when I was a scoundrel, back when I liked to party, back when I wasn't following Jesus. I want to talk about, uh, for a moment, about, about this Greek word, kephale, or head. It appears in Ephesians 5, verses 21 through 24. It says this, 
And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head, or kephale, of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. And then the Bible uh, uses this word to describe Jesus' relation to the church as his body. Like in uh, Ephesians 1, verses 21 through 23, which says this. Now Christ is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ, who fills all things everywhere with himself. So sometimes this word is translated as authority or source. Uh, The word would have been well known to Paul's readers in the Greco-Roman world uh, as authority, right? But we see in, in this passage I just read from Ephesians 5, Paul actually gives it uh, a new meaning when he reverses uh, its meaning from its conventional understanding of head and authority by comparing it with Jesus' humility. Here's what it says, Ephesians 5, 25 through 30. For husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church, and we are members of his body. So instead of using the word to describe the husband's authority over his wife, Paul flips it, and he says the head is called by God to service, for service to the body. And as an example, he uses Jesus' self-giving love for his church on the cross. Why? Because the cross turns everything upside down. It turns everything upside down. The theology of the cross points to self-giving, self-sacrificing love. The kind of love that Jesus demonstrates to us as the head of the body, we the body, right? It is not the head's authority over the body, but the head's service for the benefit of the body. Paul reorients the head as called by God for service to the body. Paul's meaning of head here is not at all like what his audience would have expected. First century ancient culture, They would not have expected this, right? The ancient world would have already positioned men in authority over women, right? So he wouldn't have been 
saying anything new when he said, wives, submit to your husbands. Like, that's nothing new to that culture. But the fact that he begins this passage in Ephesians saying, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ would have been absolutely shocking to anyone who read this in first century Greco-Roman culture. Paul's new way of describing headship uh, would have absolutely gone against the cultural norm of the ancient world, absolutely. Husbands are told to look at Jesus' example, right, to serve their wives instead of expecting to be served by them as the lords of the home. And all of this speaks to us modeling Christ's humility. Humility without focus on power and control and dominance. Humility where we are given by God to one another, right? Where we can defer to one another's strengths and we can cover and protect one another's weaknesses where we can celebrate all of our different gifts, all of our different perspectives, all of our different experiences in a way that is honoring to the Lord in a way that brings about unity. Right? This is the path of humility. It is, it is defined by Christ's character. Um, it is defined, too, by our final destination, heaven heaven, who we will be and what we will be doing for the rest of eternity should shape our beliefs, our actions, our practices today, right? Big word for this would be eschatological discipleship. Who I am, who I will be for the rest of eternity should start breaking into who I am now, right? For one, we know that there will be male and female in heaven, right? Jesus was resurrected as a man. But we also know that marriage and family as we know it uh, will not continue on into the resurrection. The ways that men and women relate to one another in marriage and in family are only temporary. Life together in the resurrection will involve a level of love and friendship and collaboration that will transcend marriage. It will transcend our biological family, right? All of our previous concerns for right, equality, power, authority will be replaced with the diversity of humanity collaborating and working in unity as one body, the body of Christ, right? It will be a beautiful image, right? But how do we live in the tension between where we will be and where we are now, right? Between the kingdom, between the kingdom being here but not yet fully here. Right? The answer uh, isn't easy, but here it is. 
each family and each church um, has to seek the leading of the Holy Spirit under the headship of Christ and find their way. There's no other answer than that. We seek the leading of the Holy Spirit under the headship of Jesus Christ himself, and we do it in humility, not focusing on authority and power and control, but on how we can serve one another with Christ's humility. Whether we're talking about marriage, we're talking about family, we're talking about church family, we are given by God to one another so that we can defer to one another's strengths, so that we can protect and cover one another's weaknesses, so that we can celebrate our different gifts, our different perspectives, our different experiences in a way that honors our Lord Jesus Christ and brings the future reality of heaven into the here and now. There is no answer than to do that. We follow the leading of the Holy Spirit under the direction of the headship of Lord Jesus. We follow his model of humility. And we seek the answers together. Each family has to find their way. Each church has to find their way. And we may land in different places. But the answer is Christ's humility. Let's pray. Lord, in Micah 6 8, you say this. You say, O people, the Lord has told you what is good. And this is what he requires of you to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Today, we choose to walk humbly with you. We choose to live by your spirit. We choose to follow your lead. God, help us to defer to one another's strengths and cover and protect one another's weaknesses. Help us to celebrate our different gifts and perspectives and experiences in a way that honors you and in a way that brings the future reality of the kingdom of God, of heaven, into the here and now. Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.